I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. On January 23rd, 1961, just four days after President John F. Kennedy was sworn into office, a B-52 bomber crashed near Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. Two H-bombs, each 250 times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Japan, marking the end of World War II, were thrown out and fell at a velocity of 700 miles per hour and crashed into Goldsboro, North Carolina. Information about this event was kept classified until 2013. This is the true story of that mission as told by the man who actually dismantled the hydrogen bombs in the aftermath of an accident that could have been the worst man-made disaster in history. Here's Earl Smith with the true story of the Goldsboro Broken Arrow. Well, I graduated high school in 1956 in Hatton, Alabama. And like everybody else around there, the day after you graduate high school, you go to Kalamazoo, Michigan. So I go to Kalamazoo to visit my brother. I had a brother and two sisters live there. And uh, my brother had a neighbor about my age. And so we decided to go downtown on a Saturday morning just to fool around. And so there was a recruiter station. I said, let's go and make that thing. Guy think we're going to join. So... <laughs> So it was in the morning, we were down there, so uh, by uh, 3 o'clock that afternoon, we was pulling out on a train for the processing station in the Air Force. So anyway, when I went back, my brother and was about to have a heart attack. He said, you did what? I said, I joined the Air Force. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, I did. I got to leave this afternoon. <laughs> and I left. We signed up on a buddy plan, and after that, I never saw my buddy again. So... He goes to California uh, for school, and I go to um, Texas. And the first school I w- went to is uh, called Munition School. 
and uh, they give you different tests to see kind of what you qualified for. So this uh, first assignment, they send me to down to Puerto Rico, Ramey Air Force Base. So I go down down to uh, Puerto Rico there, and uh, well, I'm doing the job at what's a munition maintenance uh, called for, which is basically taking care of the bombs and the ammo and the storage area and loading them on the plane and what have you. Well. The Air Force decided to start a airborne alert with nuclear weapons. So we had 33 B-36 bombers down there. So they started what they call Operation Curtain Razor. Every day at one o'clock, a plane would leave Ramey, and at the same time, another plane would leave North Africa. There's one always, always in the air, and five on the ground, or five days on the ground, with loaded with nuclear weapons, each one ready to go, and ammunition. So anyway, when I leave Puerto Rico, they formed a new squadron called the 53rd M MMS, uh, which is Munitions Maintenance Squadron. And we wound up at, at uh, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. Back then, I, you know, I, I just figured I'd rather disarm a bomb and eat when I was hungry, you know, but uh, real reckless, you know, that back then. But, but I'm the same kid that when I was growing up, all the little neighbor kids older than me, they taught me into turning over the neighbor's beehive and stuff like that, and I, or throw a bucket in the well, the old dug wells, and I'd do stuff like that. I was real daring. <laughs> so I guess it stems from back from something like that. I had put in for bomb disposal school, but before you can get in, uh, you have to, I understand, have to have a, a grade of 90 or above, I believe, from munition man for them to put the money behind you, and it's strictly voluntary. So I received an appointment after a few months to go to EOD school in Indianapolis, Maryland. Well, the school, the school, like I say, was, was extremely hard. Uh, you just literally, live from day to day and hope you can make it through another day. Because the man, when they're in the indoctrination, first of all, they take you out in this field. It's about, about a 20-acre field. And they have everything that's ever been thrown, dropped, or projected from all over the world up to a V-1 and V-2 rocket. It hadn't got to the, you know, the big rockets at the time. And they, a man tells you, he said, gentlemen, before you graduate this school, if you're fortunate enough to graduate this school, you'll be able to walk up to any piece of ordnance out here and tell me what it is, what kind of explosive used in it, what kind of fusion system, and what country's from, and how to disarm it. And everybody punching everybody, yeah, sure, uh-huh, yeah. I mean, it's... But before you leave that school, that's one of the easier things you can do. You're not even got into the to the big big uh, missiles and what have you. But really, the nuclear bombs hadn't entered hadn't entered my mind. I I, I just I never dreaming that I'd have anything dropped in my lap like was dropped in my lap. But once I uh, I get back to my base after I graduate, and uh, it happened to be my night on uh, standby. It was January, it was actually January the 23rd, 1961, when the control tire called me. And they said, uh, we have a B-52 coming in, tail number 0187, with fuel leaks in the Bombay area. Well, I knew that was serious, because when they go to let the landing gear down, you possibly have sparks, could you know create a fire. And I lived off base, so, 
it had been a snow on the ground, it was about 10 degrees that night, so I got dressed right quick and I didn't bother to lace my boots on it. I just wrapped the strings around them, tied them. But by the time I got to the base, they determined it had crashed off base about 12 miles. So General Moore had already had a helicopter waiting for me because the EOD man has a first priority on what they call a, a broken arrow. The bomb that fell was a Mark 39 uh, bomb, which is actually 3.8 megatons of explosive. And a lot of people don't know how, how much a megaton is. If you take a, a railroad car, a coal car, and you load it heaping up with TNT, it would stretch all the way across the United States and back in far Chicago. That's only one point, one megaton, only one megaton. This was 3.8. And you've been listening to Earl Smith, the true story of the Goldsboro Broken Arrow, and that occurred on this day in 1961. You're going to want to hear the rest of this story here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past, know that all of our stories about American history, from war to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. 
Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue here with our American stories. And we just learned from Earl Smith that just one of the two hydrogen bombs that fell on Goldsboro, North Carolina on this day in 1961 contained 3.8 megatons of explosives. Here's Earl making that statistic understandable to laymen. The experts claimed that it would, uh, with the fallout and everything, if one of them had gone off, it would kill everybody all the way from New York City, all down the eastern seaboard to the tip of the Florida Keys. So pretty much wiping off the, the whole eastern seaboard. It was 250 times stronger than what was dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, that was only 40 kilotons. So this thing was, it was just, just a monster. So when we get out to the, to the things, he had a light under the helicopter and we're flying around and I see a parachute. I said, my God, they're not supposed to be connected. Uh, so I said, set me down as close as you can get to it. And the guy said, but I don't want to get too close. I said, it don't matter, buddy. You get me as close as you can. So General Moore tells me, he said, now you can't touch that bomb or anything until we get permission from Atomic Energy Commission. I said, no, sir, that's not the way it works. And that scared me. So I got off and see what to do. <laughs> and I walk up to the bomb. When I opened that access door and saw that red A, I mean, I just, I just turned cold. I mean, it's scariest thing. I, I was 24 years old and and as the old saying, well, what am I doing here? You know, that is uh, uh, something I just didn't sign up for. But uh, it was, it was, uh, it was armed and functioning. And, and I, I thought, I really thought at that point when I couldn't find that other bomb, I thought I was dying. I, I mean, it's funny what you can tell your, your mind, you can tell yourself, and I did. I was pain. I had the the pains in the chest, and everything was was right around. I mean, buddy, I, I knew I was going. I was going fast, but I had to get get done what I could. And I happened to look over in the distance. There was about a five mile area that was literally lit up with uh, parts of the plane burning. And I saw an ambulance over with the big big uh, uh, cross on it. And I started to feel better for some reason or other, you know. So, so a few hours later. A few hours ever general seemed like an Air Force showing up, and uh, General Moore, who was a uh, General Moore, was one-star general, and General Sweeney, who was the the uh, the commander of Eighth Air Force, of which I was assigned to. Anyway, he starts asking me what all, what did you do first, blah 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 blah, and I said, well, sir, I'm probably in a lot of trouble. He said, what do you mean? Well, when uh, General Sweeney found out that. Uh, I had uh, been told by General Moore that I had to get permission from Atomic Energy Commission. He turned to his uh, aide and said, get General Moore over here. I said, oh, Lord, I'm in trouble. So General Moore comes up, and the very words he said to General Moore, he said, General Moore, if you don't know this man's damn job, I suggest you have him up to your office about two to three times a week for coffee and donuts so he can explain to you what the hell he does. Oh, Lord, my heart just sunk because General Moore's going back to 8th Air Force, 
And here I'm going to be stuck on base with this general, and I'm a little old airman, first class, enlisted man, you know. And he made him look bad, made him look real bad. Nothing ever came of it, but uh, that was, I was more scared of that than I was the bomb. I wasn't worried about the bomb. I knew I could take it. <laughs> well, about an hour and a half later, three more uh, uh, the EOD men, a Sergeant Fletcher and a Sergeant uh, Fincher, and uh, Sergeant Evers, they came out in the pickup, and we proceeded to disarm the, the, the first bomb. And uh, what happens, those bombs are so powerful, they have to be let down by parachute because they blow the plane out of the air. But they can be set up to 46 hours. This can be that long a delay because they don't worry about uh, uh, the Russians coming up and disarming them because if they don't do exactly the steps as they're supposed to be, it'll blow up anyway. So we knew that part too. So you got to do disconnect one CKT wire and then wait three minutes or so and so and then you know it's the steps. You have to do it exactly. So that's that's the reason for the parachute. So anyway. We get this bomb taken care of, and I called out uh, the motor pool for them to get a to bring a flatbed truck out so they could get in a, in a lift to get this bomb to go back to the base. In other words, it's, it's taken care of. Well, eight and a half hours after this happened, this Lieutenant Ravel shows up with a crew from SAC headquarters, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and he comes marching out there like little Lord Fortenroy, taking in charge. Well, the first thing he did was we, we finally found a second bomb, and it was, well, it really took about about three days before we really got to the park, because everything had to be done. We had to be real careful digging, because we get, had 92 de detonators that were live, and those had to be, each one had to be counted for and put in a, a little container and got back to the base. <clears throat> well, when they got down, dug deep enough, to, for, for the big afterbody part where the parachute was still in, well, he, uh, Lieutenant Ravel and his group removed that out of the ground. That was just that afterbody. Well, I was the lowest ranking man <laughs> in, on there, so I, I got the, uh, the good duty of getting down in the hole, down in the, the, the muddy water and icy water and everything, reaching down in the hole and pulling up parts of the bomb and identifying uh, what each one was. And uh, I reached down, I got the, the, the uh, nuclear core, right it up between my legs, and I handed it to some, I don't remember who it was, but I told him I probably won't ever have any more kids. And I didn't after that. So once we got all of that stuff out in a tritium bottle, then there wasn't really anything else for them to, you know, that's explosive to where the big, the big diggers couldn't come in. And uh, the local people wouldn't drink the water. They were, you know, were scared to death. They wouldn't drink the water. So we got permission to bring three of the old timers around. I can't remember even what their names were. But anyway, I took a, a cup and poured some water in it and I drank it. And I said, well, you know, would you think I would drink it if, you know, so that kind of gave them peace of mind. So we never heard any more thing about that. But they uh, told us to, uh, didn't want the public to know what we were looking for. There was one, a, a part had, which weighed about 3,000 pounds, which was uh, uranium-235 and 238. It hit hard pan and kept going. 
we were looking for this. That's what all the digging was going to be about. But uh, they told us to tell everybody when they were reporting anybody else that we were looking for a part to an ejection seat. It made, made a lot of, now that's what we actually had to say. But one, one poor man was a sharecropper and he looks up and sees this humongous parachute with something in it. He thought the Russians were invading. So he grabbed a pone of cornbread and some milk and some blankets. They found him seven hours later under some bushes where they were looking for uh, Major uh, Shelton. He, he was, um, something had killed him. The, the body, three bodies were, were uh, killed and two bodies were uh, in the wreckage immediately close to where the bomb was. But uh, five men survived. One man, Captain Maddox, he didn't have an ejection seat. So when everybody else ejected, he said he saw a, he saw a hole and he just dove for it, never dreaming he'd get out. So he made it through and then uh, he, he hitched a ride somewhere back to the base. He still had his parachute and the, the gate guard was talking about going to arrest him, thought he'd stole a parachute. But nobody, to my knowledge, has ever escaped jumping out of a jet plane and survived. And you're listening to Earl Smith. And my goodness, what he was up to that day in North Carolina. Well, we never knew about it until fairly recently. There's been a book written about it, a big bestseller. It's being optioned as a movie. The Goldsboro Broken Arrow is the thriller by Joel Dobson. The book inaccurately recounts the story from the perspective of Jack Ravel. And that's why we're bringing you Earl Smith's account. He was the guy who did the work. Not the guy who wanted the credit. And we know the difference between those two when it comes to political theater and showboaters. When we come back, we're going to continue this remarkable story. The story of how one of the world's greatest man-made disasters was averted. And that occurred on this day in 1961. Here on Our American Stories. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue here with our American stories. And we love telling you these stories from history because they're important. And my goodness, these are things ordinary Americans do that are, well, they're just extraordinary. Let's return to Earl Smith picking up with three other men who helped him dismantle the hydrogen bomb. And that occurred on this day in 1961 in Goldsboro, North Carolina. They're the real heroes too. Like I said, they're 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 all dead now. And what had happened before this? Before I found out about all this, uh, somehow this Lieutenant Ravel had found out the other three guys were dead. So he thought I was dead too. So he proceeded to tell the story like all this, how he took care of that bomb which was a bunch of crap. I mean, just out and out blatant lie or something like that because he had nothing to do. That bomb was ready at the time he got shot, come on, was taken care of, ready to go back to the base. And I imagine he was quite shocked when he found out that I was still alive. After I come, come up there and there was a lot of, lot of uh, publicity about it, after I got back home, this movie producer called me from Paris, France, and... Uh, he said he was making a movie called The Cold War, and he loved to tell my story in it. And he said, I'll fly you back up there, and we'll pay all your expenses and everything. And I said, okay. So we, I went back up there in, in uh, April of that year. Well, the man who, uh, Kurt Keller, who is a principal person, he, is, he wants everything to be historically correct, and he's the uh, president of Historical Society for Goldsboro. Well... This lieutenant, when he was telling his story, me or neither three of the other guys were ever mentioned about anything. Never mentioned. Never mentioned. So that set me on fire about getting everything straight. So that's when I went back. They, they, uh, or Kurt Keller invited me up to uh, tell the story. As a matter of fact, uh, when we made this movie, the man is flying over from Paris. The guy who's the... Uh, director or president of the Historical Society, he said, this Lieutenant Ravel was invited to be a part of it too. He said, I'll take bets he won't show up. And guess what? He didn't. I was sure hoping to hell he would. I was after all that he told and this stuff. And, and after three dead men, uh, Sergeant Fincher, Sergeant Fletcher, and Sergeant uh, uh, Evers, 
with all they'd done, I and mean, they, they couldn't defend herself. And the way he did that, I, I lost any respect I ever might have had about him. And then when they write this book, they write this book, uh, I think they ended up being two books. I've only seen one, uh, Broken Arrow over Goldsboro. The man that wrote that, I, I finally had talked to him, and I said, I don't hold you. I, I said, uh, first of all, I asked him, where did you get this information? He said, well, from Lieutenant Ravel. I said, well, he pulled you a bunch of crap. And then I proceeded to tell him about what really happened. And he said, well, I figured he was an officer and a gentleman. And I said, well, you kind of figured wrong on this one, because he, he, he wasn't. Uh, turned out to be uh, other than that. But he never showed up when we went to film this movie, but that's the way it happened. I, I, I remember everything just, just like it was yesterday. I, I don't, because when something like that is, is, is so vivid, I mean, something it's so important, you just don't forget it. But I, like I say, I never thought we were told to never ever mention it. They say, you don't ever speak of this. You don't ever, you ever, you never, never, ever, ever speak of it. So that scared this old boy, so I kind of put it out of my mind, you know. Well, first of all, they said something that bothered me for many years because they were telling everybody that all the parts were found. And I knew that piece of uranium, 238 and 235, was still in that ground. And I didn't know where it, anything might have moved, where it might have finally started uh, doing something to the water supply. And it bothered me for many years about the people living down there. And, and, and uh, But... Uh, we were told, you know, you, you, you don't talk about this. You don't, you know. But they were telling, the Air Force was telling, we were looking for an injection seat to see what killed uh, Major Shelton. And they spent a little over a million dollars digging. Now, now, me, now a million dollars in 1961 was a, was a lot of money, a lot of money. So they, they let us know right quick, you, you don't talk about it. They know. And President Kennedy had only been in office four days, and that was his first first uh, uh, speech I think he had to make about our, our press report, I guess. But like I said, I know there were a lot of generals, a lot of generals there, and uh, and a lot of media had started showing up until they finally had, they, well, they threatened them with a $25,000 fine. That's what, now they couldn't keep them out, but that's that's what they did. But it was more they said, hello, don't, you don't say a word about this. Don't say a word about it, you know. So uh, I don't think that uh, there is. I thought for a long time I worried about it. But because when you think about it, uh, the radiation would have come from, from the core, and we got the core out. But this, this other's buried so deep that the uranium, that's where it comes from out of the ground anyway. So, so uh, it's still on the ground. They're doing, they do regular testing on it. But in my later years, I I got in, I mostly selling RVs up, a dandy RV up in uh, uh, Oxford. And these men came in and they were EOD men. So I mentioned to one of them, I said, uh, you know, I, I was ex-EOD man. I said, I worked on a little job up in North Carolina. And he looked and looked at you, you worked on that job? I said, yeah. I said, I sure did. I said, I was, I was on standby. I had it by myself for an hour and a half. He said, you know, it's all over the internet. And I said, well, no. I mean, so boy, I finally got in, got on there, and after reading all that stuff, my blood started boiling, all that crap he was telling, you know.
And uh, I mean, that not, not only just for myself, for the other men that risk their lives. You know, when you go out on something like that, you don't know what's going to happen. And, uh, but for him to come in and try to take credit for something somebody else did, it's just not right. No, no way in the world. I, I, I don't, I don't hold any animosity toward him. He's, at the time, I, I could broke his neck when I first heard about it. But, but uh, you're not supposed to hate. And, and I mean, this the whole thing was just, I mean, just, just, just like something, something that's never, that's uh, never happening. And you've been listening to Earl Smith telling the story of disarming a hydrogen bomb, no, two hydrogen bombs that fell on North Carolina back on January 23rd, 1961. This event was kept classified until 2013. And by the way, assuming that everyone had died, Lieutenant Jack Ravel decided to, well, do what we all know people like this, did what he thought he could do, take advantage of an opportunity and take credit for work done by other men. No surprise that he wasn't showing up wherever Earl Smith showed up because, my goodness, Earl would have had detailed memory of disarming that bomb that, let's face it, Lieutenant Jack Ravel simply couldn't or didn't have. A great story. And by the way, we always welcome your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. And this is just a... Look, you don't hear a guy talking about himself in heroic ways. He, He did what he was trained to do. And he did it with a bunch of guys, and a whole bunch of guys died probably trying to get this plane to land safely and not create, again, what would have been perhaps the worst man-made disaster in human history. Earl Smith's story, the story of a man who disarmed a couple of H-bombs, and that occurred on this day in 1961, the year of my birth, here on Our American Stories. Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.